Thank you to Brett and Gordon, Brett and Morgan Gordon for being with us this morning. Uh, that was, I thought, just fascinating. So thank you guys so much for sharing, and I'm sure everyone was encouraged to hear that. That is incredible how extensive that program is. But thank you guys for that and for the incredible work. Matthew chapter 1, uh, before I get into that, just a couple, uh, elaborating on a couple of announcements from this morning. Doug mentioned the, uh, the ornaments. We do this every year with Grace. It's through the school where it's buying gifts for local children in the community, um, like the little paper ornaments. We have those in the back right now, so if you'd like to pick one up. Um, again, they do ask for those to be returned by December 12th. Um, a prayer request that I have that I didn't think of earlier, uh, my dad, his name is Bob. Robbie's named after him. Um, he's actually having shoulder replacement surgery this week, which I don't know if I even knew that was a thing, but uh, he's having a shoulder replaced, so please pray for Bob. Um, this evening, during our Sunday night study, Doug mentioned this, a guy named Chuck Fisher will be joining us and sharing a little bit about the work that he does through a ministry called uh, Associated, Associated Gospel Churches. And if you don't normally join us on Sunday night, I think it'd be a great time to be with us this evening. They work with, with churches. Um, they work with a lot of non-denominational and independent churches for ordination, for chaplaincy. So like, if you want to be a military chaplain, for instance, you have to be ordained. And you can't just do one of those like online things that you just sign up for. Like, you have to be ordained for real. Um, and um, how do you do that if you're an independent church? Um, and that's what this organization does. They work with churches for that purpose. So I realize you might not be interested in being a chaplain, but I think it'll be encouraging to hear about that ministry and the work that they do. Military chaplains, hospital chaplains, prison chaplains. Uh, so I'm excited to have him with us this evening. Um, today is the first Sunday of Advent, which is the season of preparation of Christmas, as we celebrate the incarnation when Christ came into the world. Traditionally, Advent has observed the four Sundays before Christmas, and this year for Advent, we're going to be looking at passages surrounding the birth of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2. And so the plan for this week and next week is to look at this beginning genealogy that is found at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew from Abraham to Jesus. We'll really just be looking at the first verse this morning, but I wanted to read through the whole genealogy because it's all one passage. So Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, 
And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Machthan, and Machthan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time of year as we celebrate Christmas and what it represents as we celebrate Christ coming into the, into the world. Lord, let us remember that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, this Christmas season, let us remember that Jesus is the reason for the season. Among the hustle and bustle of the holidays, time with family, decorations, music, and gifts, let us remember that the true gift to the world is Christ the Lord. Let us remember the great love that you have for the world, for sending your Son into the world to redeem a fallen world. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Lord, we thank you for the salvation you have worked for your people throughout time and through the witness of your sacred scriptures. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Lord, we praise you for our great Savior, who he is, what he represents, what he did on the cross, and what he reveals about you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Lord, we ask that you bless our time in your word this morning, in this Advent season. And may we be pointed to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
It matters where we come from. Genealogy has exploded in popularity over recent years. Websites like Ancestry.com make billions of records accessible and easily searchable. Through advances in DNA technology, a little bit of saliva can yield answers as to a person's ancestral background. Television shows are created to trace the family histories of celebrities. Shows like Who Do You Think You Are? and Finding Your Roots. And it's become especially popular in America. In our melting pot nation, where we can often have uncertain origins from many nations, there's a natural curiosity about where we came from. In knowing the stories of where we come from, there can be this feeling that it tells us about ourselves. And knowing what our ancestors overcame, it can remind us of what we're capable of. Writing last year for Psychology Today, Lubby Copeland, who's the author of The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are, she says, We look because human beings are natural-born storytellers, and we want to know how our once-upon-a-time fits into the narrative of our lives. We look because genealogy has a way of making the abstract history real. It's natural to wonder where we came from. The Gospel of Matthew, and in fact, the New Testament, begins with a genealogy which will give us insights into where Jesus came from. In verse 1, Matthew begins with the major figures in the genealogy of Jesus before giving more detail in the following verses. And as I mentioned a moment ago, it's my plan this morning to really look at this first verse today and then more willing to unpack the rest of the section more fully next Sunday. The first verse of Matthew's Gospel introduces the genealogy of Jesus, but it also introduces the whole Gospel of Matthew. And the way that Matthew introduces Jesus is by grounding him in the story and promises of the Old Testament. And so in verse 1, we're going to look at three main points this morning. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. And these three distinctions matter because each will tell us different things about Jesus. And with that, we'll jump into our section this morning. First point, Jesus is the Christ. Matthew begins his gospel with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, at first glance, it might not really catch our attention that Matthew says Jesus Christ. After all, those are very, both very common words that we see in the Bible. Jesus is his name. We'll actually see him given that name later on in this first chapter of Matthew. Verse 21, the angel will tell Joseph to name the child Jesus. It's a name that means Savior or the Lord's salvation. So Jesus is his name. And Christ is his title. Officially, Christ is his title. Jesus is the Christ. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed. Now, in our day, Jesus and Christ are often said together almost like a first and last name. But something that's interesting is that the names Jesus and Christ together 
are actually very rare in the Gospels. The Gospel writers use Jesus. They use Christ. But they do not typically say Jesus Christ. For his entire Gospel, Matthew does it only twice. Here and in verse 18 of the first chapter. We see Jesus Christ twice in the Gospel of John. Once in Mark, never in Luke. But then it becomes common in the book of Acts, written by Luke, and we see it also commonly used in Paul's writings. And part of that seems to be a simple evolution that had happened in the early years of the church, where Jesus Christ increasingly became used as the full name for Jesus. And I point all of this out because the potential consequence of this is to lose sight of the significance of Christ as a title for Jesus. As I mentioned a moment ago, and as I pointed out before, Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed. The Latin for the same term is where we get our word Messiah from. So Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. And anointing refers to when a a person in the Old Testament would be anointed with oil. We would see this treatment given to kings and priests, sometimes even prophets. Sometimes even objects would be anointed with oil. And the anointing was meant to symbolize purity, consecration to the Lord, and the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus is called the Christ at heart, that's pointing to his status as the anointed one. And we see times in the Gospels where Jesus is, where Christ is clearly being used as a title. To briefly give a couple of illustrations of this. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is brought to the temple as a baby, and a man named Simeon sees him, he's an old man who's waited years for this moment. Luke 2.26 says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It's a title. Matthew 16.16, Peter confesses his belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the idea of a Christ coming into the world was something that the Israelites had long anticipated by the time we came to the first century. There had been others who claimed to be the Christ. Before Jesus came into the world, there were various expectations of what this Christ, what this anointed one would be like. They had various views of the anointed one, that he would be somebody from the Davidic line who would save the Jews. To give a present day illustration, it's kind of like how today, There are lots of different views of end times theology. There are all sorts of views of what the second coming of Christ will look like and when it will happen. Well, in the first century, there were lots of different ideas and views of what the first coming of the Messiah would look like. Some thought that the Christ would be a great king. Others thought more of a general, a military figure who would lead Israel to victory over Rome. Some thought of the Christ as a great moral figure who would keep and interpret the law of Moses. And there's some truth to all of those, but perhaps not in the ways people expected. 
Some actually thought that there would be two Christs. We see this from a place called Qumran, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from. Their community believed that there would be a Christ king from the Davidic line and a second priestly Christ from the line of Aaron. And so given this long awaited for, long hoped for Christ who was to come, Matthew opens his gospel by reminding us of Jesus, who is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And we'll see during his ministry that Jesus embodies all of the offices of the anointed in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. And so it's fitting that Matthew begins his gospel by pointing to Jesus as the Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah for whom Israel had hoped. Jesus is a prophet, and that he speaks the word of God. He's also a priest. Now in the Old Testament, priests were the ones who performed sacrifices and served as the intermediaries between man and God. They had extensive moral requirements and religious rituals to be able to do this. But Jesus is the perfect high priest. He's the greater priest because by the nature of his moral righteousness and divine nature, It is he and he alone who is able to truly serve as the intermediary who brings man to God. Jesus is a prophet, he's a priest, and we'll see in our next point that he's also a king. The second point, Jesus, the son of David. I had previously mentioned that the full name Jesus Christ is rare in the Gospels. But in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is called the son of David eight times. The idea is important because the coming Christ was said to be someone from the line of King David. The king whose dynasty ruled Israel's southern kingdom from Jerusalem until the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. In the Old Testament, we see prophecies of one who would come from David's line. In 2 Samuel 7... It was promised that one of David's descendants would have a kingdom that would never end. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We see this thinking in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. One more and perhaps the best known example. Isaiah chapter 9, a popular Christmas time passage. It says, beginning in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Isaiah 9 is describing a child who will be born, and it's giving descriptions of him. But the next verse says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it 
and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So an eternal kingdom from one born of the line of David. And so it's pointing to Christ. These passages are pointing to an anointed one as the son of David. And in Matthew 1, it's saying that Jesus himself is the promised one of the Davidic line establishing an eternal kingdom. Jesus is the promised one. Now, the idea of a chosen one is pretty common in our popular imagination and culture. In Star Wars, amid attempts of the galactic empire to take control over all the planets within the galaxy, there's a storyline about a prophecy of a long-awaited Jedi who will come and restore order to the Force. In the prequels, Anakin Skywalker is recognized to be the chosen one to fulfill this prophecy. And in the overarching Star Wars saga, ultimately, he does this as Darth Vader when he kills Emperor Darth Sidious, the long-awaited chosen one fulfilling his destiny. Yes, I realize it's Darth Vader, and yes, I realize that Darth Sidious comes back in the newer Star Wars movies, but don't count those. They are to the Star Wars canon kind of like what the Book of Mormon is to the Bible. We see this idea in other places. Harry Potter is the only one who can defeat Voldemort. There's a Simpsons episode where Homer has this special birthmark where a secret society thinks that it was he who was born to be their leader. We see it with Neo in the Matrix. In the sporting world, when LeBron James came into the NBA, he was called the chosen one, referring to him as being the one who would be greater than Michael Jordan. And he officially did that in 2016. Again, it's an idea in our cultural imagination. A chosen one who was born and who is the only one who can achieve a foreordained purpose. But Jesus is the true chosen one who can bring salvation and redemption to a fallen world. He can do that because he is the Christ. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah who has come from the line of David. But he didn't quite do things the way people probably expected. I briefly touched on the different messianic expectations. How some expected a military leader or others expected a great king who would liberate Israel from Roman tyranny. Jesus is a great king. He's the king of kings. But the biggest problem with the messianic expectations of the first century was that ultimately their ideas about Jesus were too small. He's the king of the universe who sits on the throne at the right hand of God and who rules and reigns. He was a liberator. He's the one who liberates people from the tyranny of sin. He did have a kingdom. But it was not just about the kingdom of Israel. Jesus came to the world to preach the good news of the kingdom of heaven. His rule and reign in the world would extend beyond Israel to people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And the kingdom of of heaven idea in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus came from heaven to preach the good news of the kingdom of heaven to a fallen world. We will one day be in his presence in literal heaven, 
As people from days of old longed for the day of seeing the coming Messiah, today our hope and promise is for the final and ultimate realization and consummation of Christ's kingdom. The waited for, the people waited for a savior to come into the world. Our hope and promise today is for that same savior to come again, to set all things right, to bring forth his kingdom. But while we wait, as the people of Christ in a fallen world, we have the opportunity to live today for the kingdom of heaven, to live as kingdom people, to be God's people. At the beginning of his ministry in Matthew, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus begins his beatitudes, his ethics of the kingdom of heaven. He taught the values of heaven to a sinful world. And the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus tells us not to worry, but to instead seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus will compare the kingdom of heaven to the pearl of great price, worthy of everything a man has. The kingdom is compared to a mustard seed that starts small but grows, like a net that's cast into the sea and catches fish of every kind. And as followers of Jesus, he calls us to live on earth as it is in heaven. To live To love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. To love our neighbor as ourself. To make disciples of all nations. To be salt and to live as light in a dark world. Jesus calls us to treat others as we wish to be treated. And to store up treasures in heaven. Jesus is the king who ushered in this kingdom. Descended of the line of David. The Christ had to be from David. And that is why Matthew's gospel immediately goes into a genealogy which will link Jesus to David and Jesus to Abraham. And that brings us to our third point. End of verse 1. The son of Abraham. Now Abraham is the major figure of the Old Testament. Now, it should be pointed out that David is a descendant of Abraham. And so for Jesus to be a descendant of David, it logically follows that he would also, therefore, be a descendant of Abraham. But Abraham warrants mention given the theological significance that he has in the Bible. Abraham is the father of Israel. Therefore, all ethnic Israelites are related to him. Abraham is the great patriarch of the Old Testament through whom The Lord had made his covenant and promises of land and blessing and offspring. Now, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, the Lord had promised Abraham that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus is the son of Abraham who brings the ultimate blessing to the nations. God's blessing is to be found in Christ and advanced throughout the world by the spread of his gospel. Now, this idea will recur throughout Matthew's gospel. But most notably, at the end of his gospel, in the Great Commission, when Jesus tells the disciples to 
go out into the world and to make disciples of all nations. One of the great promises that the Lord made to Abraham was for a son. Abraham and his wife Sarah were old. Sarah was beyond childbearing age. But the Lord promised a son. Isaac is born in Genesis 21. Now in Genesis 22, the Lord asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his promised son. Skeptics and atheists have a field day with that incident. How could God possibly ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? But the Lord intervenes and stops Abraham and instead provides a ram for him to sacrifice. The point was to ultimately point to the Lord who would provide the sacrifice. And that introduces us to the idea of substitutionary atonement, that the lamb, the ram died in the place of Isaac. But it also gives us a picture of the gospel. Abraham did not have to sacrifice his promised son, but the Lord would not withhold his only begotten son, Jesus. Isaac is the promised son of Abraham, but Jesus is the descendant of Abraham who would be the ultimate and greater sacrifice. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the fact that Abraham was willing to make that sacrifice is also meant to be a picture of faith. But even before that happened, in Genesis 15, Abraham believed in the Lord's promises of offspring, that they would outnumber the stars. He believed the blessings of the Lord. And the text tells us that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that too points us to the gospel. That we are not saved by works. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by faith. Abraham believed. Everything else he did in his life was an outflow of his faith in the Lord. I mentioned a moment ago that Abraham is the father of Israel. But more importantly, because of his faith, Abraham is the spiritual father of all who truly believe in the Lord. Through Abraham, in the Old Testament, before the law was given to Moses, we see what ultimately mattered and brought salvation was faith, believing in the Lord. And it once again points us to why it's important to begin this gospel by establishing that Jesus is both the son of David and the son of Abraham. Because Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David who had been promised. And he's the one from the line of David and from the line of Abraham through whom God will fulfill his promise. It matters where we come from. And it matters where Jesus came from. And Matthew begins his gospel by telling us where the family of Jesus came from. What better way is there to begin this gospel? When we read the gospel of John, it's more systematic. We hear talk of eternal life and being born again. We read Paul's letters, and again, very theological and systematic. Justification, sanctification, adoption, union with Christ. Matthew is pointing us to historical theology in the history of salvation. Jesus doesn't appear in a vacuum. 
He doesn't come from nowhere. He comes in fulfillment of all that God had promised. We see the Lord working throughout time and history. And to know where Jesus comes from, and to know what God has promised, it points us to the glory and the wonder of God's salvation that he has worked in these centuries leading up to Christ. Because we see the plans of God, we see the power of God in achieving his plan, and the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his plan. All of these in bringing Christ into the world. And then looking to the Old Testament and everything that he has done and promised, we see how it is all fulfilled in Christ himself, to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have a Savior. Lord, that he came into the world. Lord, that he died on the cross so that we could have life. And we continue, Lord, just to pray for this church that we be a faithful and faith-filled church. And Lord, we once again want to lift up Brett and Morgan and Scout. Lord, so thankful to have them with us this morning, sharing about the work that they do, the people who they work with and support, who, Lord, advance your gospel and your kingdom. But may we do that too in our community, with our neighbors and friends and families, Lord, making you known. In Jesus' name, amen.